You're listening to episode 51 of the National Centre for Writing podcast. Every week we talk about the writing life and discover exciting new projects. It's Friday 5th of July here at Dragon Hall in Norwich. I'm Simon Jones and I'm joined by my splendid colleague Steph McKenna. Hello Simon. You're back. You went on the episode last week. After a small hiatus I'm back. Yes. So uh, Steph, do you play video games? Uh, Not really actually. It's Mm -hmm. never been a big part of my routine. I think I lack any kind... I'm not very competitive, so I think that's partly why I don't I don't play many video games. But you're quite you're quite into video games, aren't you? Yeah, I always video have game been. Writing and... Yeah, I always have been from a child, although, yeah, I don't play competitive games because mm. I also am not very competitive. Yes. Um, but when it comes to story-based games, I've yeah. always liked those, and it's been interesting over the years because as a form, it's developed a lot. So mm. 20 years ago, story was... Only a priority for a limited number of developers. Yeah, I can imagine it was secondary to it for a yeah. lot of people. So games would have a lot of guns and combat yeah. and shooting, which you know may or may not entertain people, mm. but story was an afterthought if it was there at all. Mm. Um, and in the recent years, that started to shift, and mm. we've started to see a more diverse range of games and styles of storytelling. Yeah. And on today's episode, we are talking with a games writer called Kelsey Beecham, who uh, was the lead writer on Outer Wilds, which is a game that came out about a month ago. Okay. And it's been talked about very favourably as a game of the year type Mm. candidate. It began life as a very indie project. It is essentially a sort of puzzle adventure game in which you're uncovering the secrets and the history of this science fiction universe. Oh, wow. Uh, But it's an interesting example to talk about in terms of writing because... The player can encounter the story in mm. any order. It's entirely non-linear. Mm. So from a writer's perspective, it's about as different from writing a novel as you can be because mm. you mm. you have to give up a certain level of control. Uh, so we want to talk to Kelsey about that. Uh, it's a really interesting companion piece to the chat we had with John Ingold yeah. a few episodes back where yeah. he was also talking about narrative design and how you write for interactive mediums. It's a whole other, yeah, it's a whole medium that I hadn't even really thought about in terms of, yeah, storytelling and sort of mapping those kinds of stories out. It hadn't really, I suppose it hadn't really occurred to me, I don't think, until we'd had conversations about it in the office when you were sort of chatting to people. It's really, really interesting. Yeah, it requires a totally different approach. Mm. And I think particularly new writers and young writers, games are going to be an avenue that they want yeah, to go down, much absolutely. like 30 years ago, they might have wanted to go into film mm, script writing. Yeah, I have to say that recently, there's been a couple of times when I've been at the cinema, and during the theater, uh, during the trailers, there's been a trailer, and I've gone, oh, this looks like an interesting film, and it's for a game, <laughs> and I've gone, oh, wow, like that, that looks like a full feature film, like the storytelling aspect of it is really, really strong, so I can imagine us doing maybe in the future, a, you know, some sort of course for, for game writing, rather than just, you know, fiction and poetry and script writing. It's a whole other... Yeah, I think because the medium has matured mm. so much over the last 20 years, there there's a much wider range mm. of games now. Mm. So you don't have to be of the kind of stereotypical expected mm. demographic mm. to find something interesting in games. There's something out there that will interest you regardless of, of where you're coming from. Mm. Um, but yeah, anyway, let's hand over to Kelsey, who is talking about how Outer Wilds came to be and how she got involved with the project. When I was in college, I was studying uh, English literature. I actually was in school to learn how to edit, and that's what I did for a while coming out of it. Um, 
my path to games was kind of a weird one. And I think that's probably the case for quite a few people in games. Um, for me, uh, you may have noticed that the creative director on this project has the same last name as I do. <laughs> and that's my I older brother. I was going to ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's my older brother. Um, and he's older by two years. We grew up making things together as kids. We just got on really, really well. And so we did a lot of, we made games back then even. Um, we did, you know, <laughs> plays, short films, that kind of thing. Uh, and he thought he was going to go to school for cinematography. Um, so I was writing some scripts for him back then. And he ended up going to the uh, University of Southern California for his master's. Um, and he was studying game design there. And so he had a game that he was working on. He didn't love the script for it, asked me to punch it up for him because we'd worked together before. And I was like, sure, yeah, of course. And uh, it just kind of gradually sucked me in. And so um, Outer Wilds was his uh, master's thesis. Started out as a very different game, but I was talking with him a lot as he was kind of coming up with ideas for it. And eventually at some point, one of us asked the other if I could be involved, but I honestly at this point don't know who asked. So <laughs> probably me, um, but that kind of, I just started moonlighting um, as as a game writer on the side just for fun and then we uh after he graduated we submitted this game to uh it's called the independent games festival igf um it's part of gdc which is the game developers conference um held every year in san francisco and we did really well at igf we won the overall grand prize we won uh best in design and we got a few honorable mentions and things like uh, narrative. And at that point, we brought it on formally. There was a studio that picked it up, Mobius Digital, same year. Um, and then I started contracting with them to do the writing. So I was doing that part-time and remotely while still working at the time as an editorial assistant at The Onion. So, right. yeah, <laughs> it was a lot. So. So you've, you've worked for The Onion as well? Yeah, um, only in an editorial operations capacity, but that okay, was a lot of fun. Okay. Yes, uh, and I was going to say, like, Outer Wilds is very funny at points. So <laughs> Thank you. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I think being a writer on a game is such a different experience to a lot of the people who listen to our podcast, who you know go off and write a novel on their own. Um, if collaborations happen, it will usually be with one person, uh, right. you know, even if you're a comics writer, you'll have an artist that you work with, but games are a whole other thing. And, uh, you know, you have the creative director and lead designers to talk with. And I was kind of wondering your role as the writer, how does that kind of intersect with the other aspects of design in the game? Ah, so there's this whole, uh, area. Some people will separate out in games, the roles of writer and narrative designer. Um, I've always just kind of put them all in the same basket. So obviously I did like the text um, and the actual, you know, everything that, that's written that you're going to find in the game. But I also did a lot of work with um, like the story team was the creative director, the lead designer and me. So we did a lot of world building together. Um, we did a lot of kind of figuring out how things worked. So they would tend to focus on things like you've, um, since you've played Outer Wilds, you know that like the planets change over time, that sort of thing. 
so they were figuring out the mechanics of how the world worked in that sense. And I was figuring it out more from a lore perspective of who's on these planets and how long have they been there, that kind of thing, what their story is. And we kind of figured out an overarching story that we were working on for the game. And then where narrative design comes in, we made a lot of choices like, um, okay, well, you've, you've played the, well, this is a bit unusual for a game, but you've uh, you've encountered some of the found text from the Nomai, I assume. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, that's that's the kind of thing that I work on. So, like, it, we knew there was going to be so much found text in the game, and we didn't want people to have to like like in Skyrim where you pick up a book and you press A and you just go through all of the text that way, and it's like a page of you know text, but it's kind of it doesn't have a lot of context. It's kind of detached from mm-hmm. the world in a lot of ways. Um, Alex and Lowen came to me, that's the uh, creative director and uh, lead designer is Lowen Verneau, and he is tremendous. Um, they were just so good to work with. But sorry, point being, <laughs> um, they came to me and said, hey, you don't have to do 2D text. We want to put it physically in the world in some form. And so I got to design text that branched and reinforced different ideas. Um, I did a lot of work with like the whole premise of Outer Wilds is kind of based around the idea of we didn't want to create a game that had missions that told the character, the player, where to go and what to do. We kind of wanted to give them free reign in an, in an open world and tell this very nonlinear story. And so um, a lot of it was me figuring out how do we tell this nonlinear story in bits and pieces through this found text without kind of setting it up in ways where the player can like spoil the story for themselves, essentially. And there are every single piece of text in Outer Wilds is like a clue to something else in the game to show you, you know, what the next piece of a puzzle is or the next bit of a storyline, that kind of thing, how to get to certain locations. So you're always piecing stuff together. And a lot of that is uh, something that we spent just hours and meetings on kind of fine tuning. Yeah, no, it's, it's really fascinating. And the, 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 the text that you find on walls where you're kind of almost sort of archaeologically uncovering stuff that's happened in the past and prior conversations um, where it's all these little snippets of dialogue from other people that you're kind of piecing together. And um, we talked to John Ingold from Inkle Studios ah. uh, a few months back. John's brilliant. It drives me a... absolutely mad. <laughs> <laughs> I want yes. to steal his brain he, a know... little bit. Yeah, me too. He knows a few things about designing narrative games. Oh, um, yeah. But he, he has some really interesting things to say about uh, you know what you were saying about Skyrim, where you'll just get kind of reams of text that you have to go through. Yes. <laughs> um, and John was talking about having kind of micro text almost, where every little snippet that the player encounters is very small and very bite-sized, but gradually adds up to something larger. And it feels like you kind of went with a similar approach in Outer Wilds. Yeah. So the funny thing about writing in games, I'm a writer, and I'm obviously I'm a reader. I I love books. I devour books. But if you get if you give me a wall of text in a video game where I've been playing and I've been very active and having a lot of agency in my experience and running around and suddenly I have to stop and read a ton of text that doesn't seem to be super related to anything that's going on. I mean, that that drives me absolutely mad as a player. I want to skim through it. And this is coming from somebody who, again, loves reading. <laughs> so you kind of have um, one word economy I, is just one of the most important things in writing for video games because you don't ever want your player to feel like they have to just get through the text. Um, And so it becomes really important to be able to write really 
short economical pieces of text that are still communicating what you need them to to the player, giving them the information they need or the next clue or whatever it is um, in the context of design, but you're also still making them really engaging and really memorable and doing, you know, actual character building and, and plot development and, you know, character arcs, that kind of thing. So it's it's a really fun challenge. And when I started writing Outer Wilds, I had come from a background of, I, I wrote a lot for fun. And so I'd written, you know, like novels and um, short stories and things. And I was used to being able to be very eloquent or whatever and, and to take up a lot of, you know, you, you have all this space, you want to use it. And in games, that's just not the case at all. And at first it feels so wrong to go through and just edit with a machete. You just, you know, you have to cut things in half at least. Yeah, absolutely. And you can really feel the, the kind of efficiency in in the text that is in the game. Because as you say, it, it doesn't I mean, it doesn't kill the pace of the game and force you to sit down and read a book for 10 right. minutes before you get back to the game. Um, I think the thing that struck me as being a real achievement is that the, the kind of text you're delivering, like you say, it's, it's always providing a clue or some kind of hint about where to go and what to do next. But the risk there is that every piece of text could have ended up being very exposition heavy and just an info dump. Um, <laughs> but you, you, you managed to sidestep that. <laughs> yeah, no, um, I'm sorry. I'm laughing because that's exactly how it started at first was just, you know, way too much text and it just wasn't that interesting and you have to go through it. Um, i tell you what, who I absolutely love for this, especially in science fiction. Um, obviously, I, I'm, I'm an Asimov fan. I, that probably comes through a bit. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, William Gibson. Gibson's tremendous, I think, for being able to kind of just drop you into the world without taking a ton of time to explain every tiny little piece of, you know, science and how everything works. And you kind of just get by on context clues. And we try to do a lot of that um, and a lot of, you know, kind of having some, uh, how do I say this? just things that the player is kind of already familiar with. And then you put it in kind of a slightly different setting, things like that. So like, even with, um, if you look at the Harthians, which is the player characters race, we did a lot of things like, um, I specifically call it a solar system, which uh, it did annoy someone who play tested the game at NASA. <laughs> He's like, well, there's no real, you know, why would they know Latin? I'm like, no, it's a fair point. <laughs> but um, we, the, the whole solar system really is designed because like the, the planet you start on is very Earth-like. So you have this very, um, I don't know, you're situated in a way where you kind of are coming from a place of familiarity and then setting out into the unknown. And so the things that you're meeting that are strange and unusual and weird, there's still things that you kind of have a place where you're coming from and you can kind of compare it against that. Also, I think I, I, I possibly went way off the rails there and did not answer your actual question. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> no, no worries. No worries. I mean, I mean, I could talk about this game all day, to be honest. Um, I think what you said about context is really interesting because the game uses context to fundamentally change the player's kind of response to areas. So when you first go to a new planet, um, it's it can be utterly terrifying. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. And, <laughs> And, Giant's and, and, Deep then, especially, and, I love that. I love every time somebody goes into Giant's Deep below the surface and finds out what it's really like. <laughs> yes, when you when you go to these places for the first time, it's it's horrendous. <laughs> um, 
But then as, as you unlock some of the story and as you explore and become more comfortable with the space, it, like the exact same location can suddenly feel very cozy uh, or kind of beautiful. Um, and I can't think of many games that do that where nothing has fundamentally changed, but your understanding of it has altered due to information you have. Yeah, that was so important to us. Um, we get compared a lot to No Man's Sky because that was a game, gosh, I'm blanking on the year that came out, but it was this um, it was this gorgeous looking space game that, and I have to confess right now, I haven't played it yet and I've been meaning to for years. Um, so that's that's me ashamed. But um, it's this gorgeous, you know, procedural space game where you're going through these really beautiful alien worlds and everything. Um, and but one of the things that we kind of defined ourselves in opposition, I guess, a bit, but we always said this, that we were a very handcrafted universe. So there's only... Okay, I never know how to count the planets. What, five five planets? <laughs> Some moons, there's the hourglass twins, and then the hourglass tw- twins are obviously each their own planet. So maybe more like six. It's all a bit hand-wavy, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it, we really wanted it to be kind of that idea of discovery and exploration in the real world where we know about a lot of things on Earth, but the more we learn, the more that changes our perspective, the more we you know, we we feel so differently about places the more we experience things there and learn about their history. So that was something that we really wanted to get across in Outer Wild. So I'm very excited to hear that you you had that experience. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like when you move to a new city or something and every street is intimidating and slightly worrying and you don't understand how it all slots together. And But then a week later or a month later or a year later, it, it feels utterly different. And it's just your response to it nothing has changed in the actual place itself right and actually that's it's especially funny because here of course it's a time loop game um every 22 minutes or so or every time you die and so death for us is not a fail state which is fairly that's fairly unusual um for a video game in a lot of ways so that changes the experience dramatically but also um then you get these these moments of, oh yeah, I, I died over there a few loops ago. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I love that sense of casual familiarity with it when it's coming from a place of, you know, mortality and sort of existential terror. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's an interesting one, actually, because the, the fact that there's no real way of failing in the game because there's this kind of Groundhog Day style time loop, yeah. um, it's, it makes it quite a good game for people who don't necessarily always play games. So, you know, if you're if you're reading a novel, for example, like there's no way you can fail to read the next line. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, your comprehension of the novel might be a slightly different thing, but, you know, once you've started it, you can get to the end of it if you're enjoying it. Well, and, uh, and you can always a, reread the line if you feel that you didn't fully grasp it initially. Yeah, games can be off-putting to people because if they're not good at the game it doesn't matter how much they like the story they're not going to be able to get through it right Um, and i think you guys kind of cleverly got around that we are we are still certainly a bit of a challenge but yeah i think the fact that death just isn't a fail state for us so if you're dying a lot maybe it could be frustrating but it's not you're not playing the game wrong there's really absolutely no way to play the game wrong it's designed very much so that there's you know there's an end to the game like you can finish the game but it's not really quote-unquote beating the game you know there's no there's no combat there's no no items there's no customization (laughs) you know no experience points nothing like that the only the only reward you get in this game is knowledge which is fairly unusual um 
especially for this type of game, because we're not coming out and saying, hey, we're a mystery game. Um, there's this brilliant game, Return of the Oberdin, that came out just last year. And that's very much, you know, you're um, experiencing the story. You're trying to figure these things out, solve a mystery. And this game is very much, you know, it looks very action-adventure. It is very action-adventure, but we're still taking this game and saying, hey, the only reward you're going to get is knowledge. So, you know, I hope you care about that. Yeah, I was wondering if uh, we could look at like a specific example of maybe how the process of writing for this kind of game works. So I was, uh, for example, looking at uh, the planet, I think called Bitter Hollow, which is this kind of hollowed out, falling apart planet with a black hole right in the middle of it. Um, (laughs) And scattered around the interior, there's all these caves and you find settlements, some of which are older than others. And you gradually kind of unpick lots of story elements that are within that. And I was wondering, you know, is it that the, the designers on the game and the people building the levels kind of built the space and then you came in to add story and text to the space or the other way around or was it just all at the same uh, time so i should clarify too that um one of the beautiful things about being a game writer is that each project is going to be different obviously but it's also each project you play a slightly different role um and so in this one and in this one i i just uh, i can't stress enough how much it mattered that i you know the creative director and I clicked incredibly well because we, you know, grew up as kids making things like this. So because I was involved from the very beginning, I was present for a lot of the evolution of these planets. So there was a lot of back and forth. But yeah, the designers were largely creating the spaces themselves. And then as we went, as they did level design, um, they'd consult with me on world building things. And we'd talk about how the Nomai, that's our ancient aliens, um, would have gotten to the planet. You know, they might have had an initial settlement. They went under the crust to build their their big city. What might be in that big city? That kind of thing. Um, you know, there's the I, I don't want to spoil much for you, but there's you know the 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 forge is there, the black hole forge, and you've got like the the children's school, that kind of thing. Um, and as we fleshed out those spaces, we were also you know I was also fleshing out that backstory of the Nomai. So obviously they initially arrive there there's that initial settlement and then they get to the point when they have the city and the school there they're sending their like young from uh the hourglass twins over to brittle hollow for schooling that kind of thing um so as it was just such a great experience for me as a writer because it went very what's the word i want it was very hand in hand so design choices would be made and then they'd talk to me about them and I'd suggest some some narrative design ideas or some some world building story, that kind of thing. And then they would incorporate that into the level design. And then they would come back to me with what they had and then I would incorporate that into the story. So it just, they very much were integrated from the very beginning. And that's, I think, the best possible scenario for writing in a game. Yes, yeah. It sounds like you, you're possibly being a bit spoiled working on this and oh, your yeah. first project. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I uh, A lot of the time you come in on a project as a writer and you won't be coming in from the very beginning, especially if you're doing contract work. Um, and so you'll have some some legacy things like, hey, we have to accommodate this type of gameplay, this type of enemy. You have to make you know these things about the world part of the story. You have to explain why this area exists, that kind of thing. And it's all, you know, it's all doable. And And more and more lately, I think we've stepped away from the writer as kind of being this 
narrative paramedic coming in trying to make the game, you know, make sense <laughs> um, in terms of a story. You're not really being asked to cobble things together as much anymore. It's a lot more organic working with a team going back and forth like this. But definitely Outer Wilds was collaborative in just a very extreme way. Something I uh, just just before we started talking, actually, I just picked up on the the blog from Mobius Digital was oh. a blog post about the translation and localization of the game. Oh my um, goodness, that's such a good one! Yeah. Yes, uh, we do a lot of work with literary translation here. Uh, it's a big part of our kind of overall program, so that kind of grabbed my attention, um, and particularly, you know, the challenge of translating the game into so many languages and some of the possibly kind of accidental challenges that had been introduced by some of <laughs> the notions in the game, whether it was naming or the kind of gender pronouns or lack thereof. Um, yes. uh, I was just wondering, kind of, uh, were you involved still at the point of localization or was that kind of a separate process? Uh, a bit. So normally, if you know in advance, we did not know in advance we would be localizing the game. So that was a very exciting thing that happened. Normally, you would set it up in a way where um, you've got, you know, you've got your your databases, uh, we would have, boy, we did a lot of like Excel. There's a lot of Microsoft Excel involved in being a games writer. <laughs> um, more than more than you'd think, um, which I just bring up because it was kind of a, a, initially it was a lot of us getting things ready for translation where normally you would just kind of have a system setting that up as you go so that you can export the lines and you know everything's getting translated, you're all set. So I was involved because of that, especially. And then um, we started sending things to translation while I was still working on other parts of the game. So we'd finalize certain batches of text and send that off. Um, I didn't have to do much with it. Actually, honestly, I would have loved to have been more involved with the translation team. But that was pretty much exclusively handled by the Mobius Digital. And uh, I don't know if I've mentioned this, but I worked remotely with them for the most part. I worked for a few months on site, like full time with them um especially as we were play testing the game but yeah there wasn't a lot with me there um and i wish i had been because the more i read about like the french translation team especially um i love it i'm so interested in the work they were doing people really really were quite good about being willing to do they them as a singular third person pronoun and i really think that's important so it was something mm -hmm. i kind of insisted on yeah, uh, but then obviously yeah, a bit of a challenge for some of the other languages <laughs> that don't have convenient words that they can use. Right. That. And then, of course, you have you have your gendered adjectives and things. So the, some of the, the workarounds in that blog post are wonderful. I was I would have, oh gosh, I would have read hours of that, honestly. It's about trying to translate the kind of cultural meaning and making yeah. sure that the, the new audience in that other country and other language is going to understand the subtext of what you're doing and all that kind of stuff oh, and I inadvertently I wrote the hardest game to translate because we didn't start from the beginning <laughs> setting it up to translate so we had to do some some work there on the back end but then also it's got you know wordplay and and puns from the ancient aliens because you know I wanted to make them approachable there's there's this whole trope you know with ancient aliens being all wise and all-knowing and they're they're very serious <laughs> and I just wanted to avoid that at all costs but yeah. Oh my gosh. The um, <laughs> the French team in particular, I think, just had some really interesting stuff to say about that. So they were like, what did they say? They said specifically, they were like, we had to be really careful with translating because if we literally translated the ancient alien text, it would have just seemed like we 
we'd done a bad job translating it. <laughs> like it was just awkward from the translation itself. And I put a lot of things into the, the Nomai found text, that ancient alien text that you find, because I wanted it to feel, um, because you have that translator tool that you're reading the text with that kind of quote, quote unquote decodes it for you. you. Just, it's a point and shoot thing, but um, that, that, was something I really wanted to get across. Like that's a great example right there of narrative design where I'm saying, okay, I know this translator tool would be a bit faulty potentially. It's not gonna be hundred percent. So let's kind of translate it in a way where it sounds like there might be some some odd, you know, turns of phrase, that kind of thing. My favorite of course, being the ones where I've uh, taken like an, a common idiom and then kind of just tweaked it to be a bit off. So like between a rock and a place of similar hardness, um, they were very fun to write, but it took it took so many passes to get the tone down because for ages they were just they just sounded too serious or or too flippant. I don't know. It just took so many passes. Yeah, and as you say, the the, the ancient, very serious, very wise alien race is is such a common thing inside. Yeah. <laughs> steering clear of that is quite important, but also so easy to fall into as well. Yeah, we definitely borrowed from the trope because we wanted them very much to be this kind of better than us <laughs> species of, of explorers and scientists and artists, but we still wanted them to be approachable, especially since you're reading about them in past tense. Yes. Yeah. So you mentioned tone just now and the, the tone of the whole game is really unusual because it has this kind of mix of kind of DIY backpacking, going on holiday, <laughs> going to camp kind of feel right. uh, while at the same time, there's this sort of undercurrent of unknowable, horror and threat <laughs> um, <laughs> and they're kind of both running simultaneously at all points and I was like how did you as a team or as a writer how did you settle upon that being the tone for the game because it's quite unusual I can't think of many games that kind of go down that route <laughs> well Alex was the one who wanted to talk about um this this idea of something that's older than the universe itself um I don't think that was in the original prototype of the game I think it was something that was brought in later when we were saying okay what brought the Nomai to this place but um, he's always been really interested in space. And I tend to forget that most people did not grow up with an older brother who was just constantly talking about like black holes and event horizons and like getting lost in space and how far apart everything is. Like that used to terrify me as a kid. And now I'm a little, a little less, I think, you know, existentially horrified by it. <laughs> so that's, uh, that was a fun one to, yeah. Um, honestly, that's part of why I used... Um, you very kindly said some of the text was funny, and, and that is why I tried to get humor in there, because it is kind of this weird, you know, we don't know everything about the universe, and some of it is objectively terrifying. So, plus it's a game where you're repeatedly dying over and over, and we didn't want to treat that super flippantly. Um, you'll notice there's no option to just, like, take your helmet off and kill yourself that way in space. Um, there is an option to meditate. I don't know if you discovered that, though. I don't think I have, no. Yeah, uh, it's one of the travelers who can teach you how to do that, and that's all I'm going to say about it. But meditating yeah. specifically is what it's called. You can meditate until the next loop, and it gets you to the end of the time loop, but to the start of the next one, because we didn't want to have an option to just kill yourself. That was a little dark, even for us. <laughs> um, also, I'm I'm definitely hugely influenced by uh, authors like uh, Douglas Adams and Terry Pratchett, where they tackle, oh God, Terry Pratchett's thud in particular where he tackles, you know, very serious subject matter, but he does it in a way that's very graceful and deft with humor and kindness. And I just, 
I admire that so much. So that was a big part of it. It was that we wanted to treat this as a big, you know, it's a serious thing. Um, the ending of the game definitely, definitely touches on that. But also, you know, we didn't want to put people in a position of, oh, the sun's constantly exploding and it's uh, it's horrifying and, you know, you're going to constantly die and that's terrible. You know, you had to still kind of balance it out with the wonder of the unknown and the, the value of exploring. Yeah, because I, th- I think particularly in gaming, uh, you know, a horror game will usually be unrelentingly horrific. <laughs> um, yeah. that, that That is what it sets out to do and everything about it is awful. And you know, if you like that kind of thing, then great. Uh, but I think maybe I, I can't handle them. <laughs> no, well, I've watched my I'm brother a... play like uh, <laughs> Resident Evil, but like with my hands over my eyes the whole time. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm a complete wimp when it comes to horror games. Um, and I feel like maybe in films and in books, you get uh, you get a bit more flexibility. Um, you get things which kind of play around with genre and can be horrific while being something else at the same time. And yeah. Outer Wilds does that a bit, so it's not so oppressive that I can't play it, for example. Yeah, I've heard um, a couple people say uh, it's the best horror game they've ever played, which I just, it cracks me up every time I see that because, I mean, it's not its not a horror game. On, and it's got some, you know, some horrifying things in it, I suppose, or some very, you know, um, hard, to, hard to approach things, especially if you're afraid of space. But yeah, it's not, it's not, you know, out and out supposed to be like scary. It's just more like the world will kill you. Absolutely. But you can understand it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, I think everything in it is very rules based. Uh, you know, it, mm-hmm. kind of, it has its internal logic and sticks with it very closely, which for the player is really interesting because when they first encounter certain technology or an environment where something has happened in the past and it makes no sense whatsoever. And then, you know, a few hours later, suddenly something clicks and you realize, oh, that's actually something that does this. And then a whole aspect of the story or the world makes sense when it didn't before right that's actually something we worked very hard to do alex in particular was very insistent that the systems should keep going whether you're paying attention to them or not um the idea being that a lot of games will you know you're you're the player you're the hero you're the protagonist and it's clear that the game like it's not going to progress without you you know, and sometimes as a result, the game can feel very narrow or very thin because it's just waiting on you. And in this case, this is a lot of, you know, everything's changing around you. You can't do everything in one loop. You just, you can't be in all places at once. So like the world's going to move on and do things. And I think it kind of creates a really unique relationship between the player and the world. You talked earlier about how it's, you know, you're telling a non-linear story here. Um, yes. Or at least you're telling you're telling the story non-linearly, um, and I mean, it, like any story in any medium can be non-linear. You know, you can write a a novel that is non-linear in its approach, like chronologically, to how it reveals its story. But in that case, it's still the author that is determining that non-linearity. Whereas right. what you had to contend with was the fact that it's the player unpicking this thing in whatever crazy way they happen to do um as as a writer how on earth do you make sure that things do make sense how do you work out the pacing like how do you get over the anxiety of having no control over (laughs) how the how the player is interacting with what you've done yeah i love that you asked this. this is a great question um actually i gave a talk last year at a conference called meaningful play where i talked a little bit about how we set this up um 
So step one, if you're going to tell, technically there's a chronological order to the story. So if you're going to tell it non-linearly, especially like in an open world, um, you have to kind of accept, yeah, you can't control what piece of text the player is going to see first um, in terms of found text, that is, um, which I think is, yeah, definitely the majority of text in the game. So unlike, well, how do I say this? In games, you are never going to be in full absolute control of the narrative because you don't know what your player will do. The player has much more agency in a game story than in, say, a novel, because obviously, I mean, you could argue that your, your reader is going to maybe reread stuff or um, skip pages, or maybe they're one of those lunatics that reads the last page first, which should be illegal. But <laughs> the idea behind a game story is that I, I, and this is especially, I mean, like, this is very true for me, is that I really value player agency. I think it's really enjoyable to write interactive things because I don't know what players are going to do. And in playtesting, and we did a ton of playtesting, it was really exciting to see them do really odd things where I'm like, oh, I, why, why would anyone do that? And, you know, they would respond like, oh, I wish I could talk to so-and-so about this thing. And I'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. That's a thing you might want to do. So you learn a lot from playtesting from your, you know, from, from just people playing the game, um, even just people in the office playing the game and responding to it. So to do this particular level of non-linearity, we just had to accept we are not in control of how the player experiences the narrative. So we just had to kind of make a game where that's, that's fine, that's doable. So there are a couple of ways I approach this. One, we are in partial control of how you experience things. Um, so um, we had roughly three levels of text types that we divided things into. Um, one is surface level, one is mid-level, and one is hidden. So the surface level text is going to be the least complex and the easiest to find. Um, it's stuff like the ruins on the moon right next to the starting planet, because it's really easy to get to that moon. Um, I say really easy, but, you know, easier than other places. Um, I know some people take a while to learn the ship. Honestly, I crashed it pretty much every time I played the game <laughs> when I started out. Oh, I just I just rammed into planets and then, you know, fixed it afterward <laughs> if it didn't explode. Uh, I got better. So surface level text, easiest to encounter. Um, it's often literally on the surface of a planet or a moon. Um, they're good mystery entry points. They're a great place to pick up. There are all these different threads of mysteries that you can pick up and follow. Um, and we designed this so that regardless of which piece of text or which story or mystery specifically you decide to follow, that's a good, you can do that. Um, but you can also just bounce off the surface text if it's not grabbing your attention. And that's totally fine. We didn't want players to feel like they had to do something they weren't interested in. So the goal of the surface text was basically make the player curious and give them an initial thread to pursue. So if you wanted to learn more about, you know, why the ruins were built on the moon, you could, you could, you, uh, you would know from that piece of text where to go to learn more about that or to see what happened next. Um, so that's, that's your surface level text. There's quite a lot of that. Hidden text, or no, sorry, whoops, mid-level text is next, isn't it? And that's usually found by following those surface level clues. Um, it is possible to find mid-level text accidentally, um, especially for the players who explore very thoroughly, but that's actually okay if that happens. Um, it doesn't ruin the story. A lot of people enjoy, you know, still following it. To, well, obviously, they're still going to follow it to the end, but a lot of people enjoyed filling out the start of the story, too, and figuring out where they came from. Um, 
And that was something that was very deliberate, where each piece of found text does have kind of a hint to it as to where to go next, where, where to go beforehand. But it's also in itself a story, even if it's a very short one. Um, so it has to be enjoyable in its own right. It has to be enjoyable as a little miniature story in a couple of lines of text. If you find a piece of text, you can follow it to the next bit chronologically or the piece of it that came previously chronologically. Mm -hmm. So it won't take you necessarily to the very beginning of the thread. You might have to, if you want to find out where the beginning of the thread is, you'll probably have to trace it all the way back to the beginning, same as you would follow clues to get to the, the end of it. Um, and the end of it is the like hidden level text. Um, that was really, that was the stuff we spent hours talking about where it needed to be in the game. And we here again is the story team. So that's uh, the creative director, lead designer and me. <laughs> it's extremely unlikely to find it by accident. Um, it's usually, it's in a difficult to reach location. Um, often you have to kind of know from the preceding text and the, the preceding clues what you have to do to get to that place. There's usually something, you know, that you have to figure out. Um, and uh, it, that's the stuff that's going to reveal really valuable information about the game's core mysteries. There are like four key threads of mystery that you can follow. And they all tie together, of course, especially at the end. Um, and they all come from the same point at the beginning. But basically answers to your big questions are always at the hidden level so that the player is not bumping into this really cool big answer and thinking like, oh, well, that's ruined it for me. I don't want to hear anything about the rest of the story. Yeah, because I've, I've sort of wondered how I haven't bumped into spoilers, basically, like while right. playing the game. Like, because basically I haven't, I don't feel like I've ever discovered uh, an important big twist in the story until a kind of appropriate moment uh, so that that kind of structural design of how you lay layered all these story elements in explains that a little bit yeah it was very deliberate <laughs> yeah I, I almost hate pointing it out because then people look for it but <laughs> um, a lot of it too was figuring out where good story reveals would happen because obviously if you look at more linear games you can do a good like three act structure and you know where like your big moments are you know where your boss battles are you know where you're like crossing the threshold moment is that kind of stuff um but here obviously since the pacing is completely up to the player and where they're going is up to them we kind of had to figure out a different way to control what those big moments were and to kind of ratchet up the tension accordingly that kind of that was a huge part of placing it in a good spot but also a visually arresting spot um the composer for the game andrew prollo is oh god to talk about people whose brains i want to steal possibly also his <laughs> hands he's so good it's 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 almost irritating <laughs> um, and 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 having good, like you know great music that's honestly the music is very much the game would not be the same without it it just it just wouldn't um so syncing it up with the music syncing it up with cool visuals and then also making you work to get to that location um making that a challenge in, in terms of gameplay and then also making it something that you know you followed clues you're invested in the story in some regard and then once you get it there's satisfying there's a satisfying moment in finding that answer but also there's usually a next bit to it where there's a bit of a twist where you're like oh that's why they were creating this thing or like that's what happened when they ran this experiment and like there are consequences to that and there are there are um you know it, it the story develops from there so that worked well for us but it was definitely something we had to really design to achieve and we 
really play tested the hell out of the game as a result. That was, gosh, we spent just hours and hours and hours play testing it. And I mean, thousands of hours and <laughs> we, it would have fallen apart otherwise. And a lot of times we'd have to go back from play testing and say, oh shoot, like this clue is way too, uh, way too subtle or it's too obvious, or we need to move information learned here to a different location. And kind of speaking a little bit to um, how the game was written, once we had the planets established and the rough backstory of these aliens, which that changed the whole time, the rough story of like what they were doing in the solar system and what you were going to learn about them, that did change very much over the course of rewrites, because of course writing is rewriting. Um, and that was basically we kind of narrowed everything down to what are the exact clues the player needs to know and where are they directing the player? If I go to the moon and I go to the, the ruins there and I learn what the aliens were doing, there's kind of a key point. It's like, okay, the player needs to learn that they built a signal dish here to find the eye of the universe. That's what we learned there. And then there's also another piece of information where we say, okay, so where does the player need to go next? Where where would they find more information about this story? What happened after they built this signal dish and it didn't work? So then we put that information in there as well. So I'm going into this with like some bullet points of, you know, what I absolutely have to include. Usually also a bullet point saying, okay, uh, before this, they tried building a signal dish on a different planet. And I, I want to get that in there in case the player wants to go check out what happened before this moment. And so... I go into it with that information and I go into it, I, I have uh, characters specifically in the text that are associated with different topics. And so I'd go in there with those names, I'd know who was involved with the project, that kind of thing. And I would just write that out accordingly, getting all of those bullet points in there, but then also trying to make that, you know, interesting or enjoyable or rewarding to the player in some way. Yeah, I think what's interesting is that although story is a critical component of Outer Worlds. It's not solely a story narrative type game. So when we were talking to John Ingram, no, uh, you know, 80 Days and the New Heaven's Vault are uh, all yes. about the story. You know, so yes. Heaven's Vault, you are unpicking the story and that is that is the thing you're doing, essentially. Whereas, I haven't played it yet, you know, but I'm so excited to. It's very good. Um, <laughs> but in Outer Worlds, the story is kind of hand in hand with the rest of the game, which if I was going to describe it, I'd probably, it's probably like a puzzle game, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and so the story has to support those and vice versa. And you don't want to make the puzzles too easy or too hard. So it's right. this kind of constant juggling act, presumably of the story you're trying to tell. And then the fundamental things that you want the player to be doing, which will not always be in sync. <laughs> right. There are definitely concessions that story had to make for gameplay. And there were moments, too, where we, you know, conceded some things with gameplay um, and and in, 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 to make to make the story work. If I said something like, oh, the Nomai would never do that. This is this doesn't make sense for them as a, as a people because they have all of these, you know, principles and everything and they have their way of living. And if I said that's something that. Uh, that we were proposing doing was in conflict with them, we would usually then, I would pitch a different workaround. Honestly, I found, um, I don't know if it's, it's a little, I think, again, uh, a case of me being a bit spoiled on this team, but typically if I 
found a workaround, if I proposed something different, came to them with um, an alternative idea that would still kind of accomplish what we wanted in terms of gameplay without also forcing us to compromise story, that was usually something they were very willing to go with. But there are certainly moments where we said, okay, like maybe this doesn't make the most sense in terms of story, but basically we have to have it be this way in order for the gameplay to work. And that happens. Honestly, it happens much more in other games I've worked on. So this, this again, was a, a beautiful moment of, of very integrated gameplay and story design. Um, so development on Outer Wilds is, has taken a while, right? Um, it has. Any- it really has. <laughs> And even the IGF was, what, four years ago? Oh, gosh, yeah. Um, I think, or thereabouts. Yeah, 2015. Um, yes. So, I mean, games take a while. You know, they take years to make regardless, but it's yeah. longer than maybe an average uh, game, <laughs> particularly, uh, I suppose, what is essentially an, an independent game. I don't know if that's quite the right term. I, I'm still calling it that, yeah. Um, I, know, I know we now are a much bigger budgeted game, um, but that was kind of a... a progression we started out at mobius digital obviously and uh, i mean we, we that was where the game was developed we didn't leave but we kind of went through a period of we we tried to do a kickstarter and then um fig started being a thing which is kind of essentially um basically kickstarter for video games but it involved actually being able to buy into uh, equity in the game and from there we were picked up by annapurna it took a little while also we're very much an indie game in that the entire game is basically can we it's it's it's, pre, it's built on the idea of can we make a video game where curiosity is the only motivating force for the player and we're not doing missions we're not telling them where to go we're not giving them points for things we're just letting them go nuts but also that's it that's the game and it was it was a very risky thing to make um it helped a lot for sure that we were well received at IGF but there was still a lot of there were still a lot of questions because what we were doing at the time was essentially saying, okay, if you're not this type of player that's okay with knowledge being the only reward, then we're we're excluding we're excluding all the types that really want combat in games. We're excluding people who like need um, more tangible rewards, and that was really tricky. So then when we were brought on and we were being published through uh, Annapurna we were looking at, okay, how do we make this game a little more accessible to a slightly broader audience instead of being quite as esoteric as we were? But it was it was a very risky game. And there were some play tests that we had where we were like, oh God, oh God, it's not coming together. It's not going to work. <laughs> I could remember one at Annapurna in particular that was just, it was a little brutal because um, we had some things that just weren't calibrated quite correctly. And that can really send you off course quite easily. So after that, we, uh, the the story team went (laughs) we went and got ice cream and then we just talked for the rest of the evening about changes we could make and we made some tweaks to it and then the next play test went so well that they were briefly suspicious that we'd like planted (laughs) play testers to say what we wanted (laughs) um so yeah it, it was very touch and go for a while and honestly i'm just profoundly grateful that it did in fact you know, get off the ground and launch. There were a lot of people supporting us doing that. And I, oh God, I, I will never stop being grateful to those people. Yeah, it's funny to talk about it being a risky game because I think it's been received so well that it's easy to overlook quite how unusual it is and how it kind of moves away from accepted 
game design and what have you because yeah. you know now in retrospect it, it seems kind of obvious <laughs> but <'cause you> been, <laughs> yeah. like, in, in, until it came out and you had that response you had no idea oh. if anyone would like it what's really funny is we get compared to a lot of games that have come out fairly recently um, especially breath of the wild and the funny thing was that this game was largely we, we knew what we wanted it to be like 2015 it just wasn't there yet because we needed more time on it but yeah that was a whole a whole thing and now we've had some really great games come out and i'm really excited about how games are approaching story and everything um, a lot of big studios are starting to put story first even and that's fantastic because obviously it's still a game it's always still going to really focus on the gameplay for the most part anyway i know there's the category of like so-called walking simulators. Um, and I've, I've loved some of those games. What Remains of Edith Finch is an incredible game. Um, Gone Home is a classic. But ultimately, you're still beholden to gameplay, of course. And so I'm really excited that the trend seems to be for a lot of studios that we're looking at ways that, you know, how can we better connect with the writing? In fact, the fact that they're, they have writing as a position is very exciting because a lot of times the text would just be written by maybe the designers and they typically don't have um <laughs> well you've, i'm sure you've encountered this it's 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 the <laughs> national center for writing um lots of people who aren't perhaps writers and don't write on a regular basis think how hard could it be <laughs> and they put some <laughs> words in and now it's so much more integrated into the development and that's very exciting because there's so many cool things you can do that way yeah, I, th I think older role-playing games are particularly uh, susceptible to that, where you know the, the <laughs> quest designer or someone would just you know write some of the flavor text and think that would be fine, and uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it didn't work so well. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously, you, the whole team would have hoped the game would go well, and you did all this testing to you know make it as good as you could. But were you expecting the you know, a week, two weeks after release, people were talking about it in in terms of it being like game of the year material? That's a really good question because I've been for about the last year, I'm actually in North Carolina now, not uh, not working with Mobius, but I was uh, contracting with Insomniac Games. So I was a little bit out of the loop, but yeah, I mean, I certainly didn't <laughs> at all um, because it was, it's it's such a story a heavily story, uh, I don't want to say story centric, but kind of that. I mean, it's very story focused. It's very weird. It's very, you know, we've had people play the game before and just not be able to do it. They just don't like it. They're like, well, this just isn't for me. And that's, that's totally fine, obviously. Like it's no game is going to be for everyone. But the fact that this many people are enjoying it, and even I've seen so many, even just people I know in game development who don't typically play games like this or had told me at the beginning of the game oh I don't really like reading in games and then from there coming back and saying I've been playing the game nonstop, I can't put it down that's it's kind of overwhelming honestly there are days I can't look at Twitter <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really cool I think our designers probably knew what they were making was something something special I just uh I don't know that anyone thought it was going to be this I mean, it's, it's been so positive, the reactions to it. It's so exciting. Uh, and then obviously, 
all eyes are on the studio and the people involved as to what they're going to do next. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and you said you've been working with Insomniac for a bit. Like, what, 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 what are you up to next? What's your next project? Ah, well, I just wrapped a contract with them in uh, March. And then recently, I just finished, like, two days ago, um, doing some short-term contracting with Mobius. But beyond that, I'm not sure. Um, that is... Of course, the trouble with uh, being a writer in games is that a lot of the work is contract. Um, both of my, both Outer Wilds and the work that I was doing at Insomniac were on contract. So I don't know yet, but um, I'm excited to find out what it is. Absolutely. And I mean, right at the start of our conversation, you mentioned how you sort of tumbled into games writing half by accident. Um, yeah. Is games writing very much your thing now? Or do you imagine uh, doing uh, other forms of writing? Oh gosh, I love it. Honestly, I love the level of collaboration it offers. I love, I mean, even even knowing that I can't just sit down and write exactly what I want it to be and have it be that, and that's that's the you know the game, that's the work, because it doesn't work that way, of course. And if it did, I I would very much want to write novels. I think um, if if that was what I was going for, but. I like the interactivity of it. I like the level of player agency. I love seeing people do things in games that I didn't expect them to and that I have to react to and kind of anticipate as a writer. It's just, there are so many interesting challenges to it that I just, I love tackling. So yeah, I think I'm I'm ruined for probably everything else. <laughs> uh, it's, 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 I'm, I'm a fairly recent convert at this point. I switched to doing games full-time what 2017 so still still uh still getting my feet under me to some extent but I learned so much from writing Outer Wilds that it was it was essentially just a crash course in how to write a video game which again is why I'm floored that the writing has been as well received as it has thrilled of course (laughs) but very surprised yeah, and now of course the game's out. You can actually point to it as an example, and uh, yes, <laughs> people will know who wrote it, which I imagine is a nice feeling. It's lovely to actually be able to, you know, give people samples or, or put them, you know, publicly or talk about it in general without having to be like, okay, well, the thing you have to understand is it's this very <laughs> theoretical game, and we're doing here's how it works, and here's these samples, and here's the context in which that exists. Yeah, no, it's really nice to be able to point to it and say that I was working on that. Excellent. Well, Kelsey, thank you so much for your time and congratulations on the game as well. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening and thanks to Kelsey for giving us so much of her time. If you have any questions or want to get in touch, you can find me on Twitter at Tarnamus. And Steph? I am at Steph X McKenna. And of course, you can send in questions to the National Centre for Writing. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. On Facebook, search for the National Centre for Writing. And if you head over to our website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk, you can sign up to our newsletter and find out about everything else that we're doing. Please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast because it really does help other people discover it. So thanks again, keep writing, and we'll catch you on the next episode when we're talking with J.Y. Yang, author of the Tensurate series of silk punk fantasy novels. Mm-hmm.